with me to the book of Jude as we conclude our series in that book. And as you're turning there, would you also join me in prayer? Father, we give you this time. We give you our hearts and our minds. I give you my words. And it's our desire that you would be powerfully at work in this time for your glory and for our good. Amen. I've got a question for you to think about. Have you ever been troubled or bothered by the power of God? Talk about God's power under a number of different words. Think sovereignty, omnipotence, His providence. These are all different aspects of God's absolute power, His control over all things. And for millennia now, people have thought about that as a problem, as a theological or philosophical puzzle that needs to be solved. There was one Greek philosopher that uh, so famously posed the problem that now his, his line of questioning is named after him. It's called the Epicurean Paradox. And Epicurus, uh, as paraphrased by the philosopher David Hume, he asked the question this way, Is the deity willing to prevent evil, but not able? Well, then, is he impotent? Is the deity able, but not willing? Then he is malvolent. Is he both able and willing? Well, whence or from where then is evil? So the problem of evil, or the Epicurean paradox, is in some ways just a question about how does God's power work in a world full of suffering? Maybe this, this problem of God's power has pressed itself on your heart and mind in other ways. For example, if God's in control, why pray? Or if God is sovereign over everything that takes place, why should I do anything? If God is all-powerful, why is there so much suffering? Now, the good news is the Bible addresses these questions. God is not afraid of questions like this. But we also find that while sometimes the Bible addresses these questions by raising an objection and answering it, the Bible also addresses these issues by reframing the questions themselves or, or giving us a whole new point of reference for thinking about the very issues that we are struggling with. To, to put it in terms of God's power, many times the Bible helps us live at peace 
with an all-powerful God, not by solving the theological puzzle, but rather by inviting us to rejoice in God's power. And that's what we have in front of us today in the final verses of Jude. So would you follow along as I read Jude verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude ends his letter with a doxology, a word of glory, an expression of praise. And what I want to do together in our time is look at Jude's doxology from the inside and then look at Jude's doxology from the outside. And and what I mean is we're going to examine what it says and then we're going to take a step back and look at how it fits in the rest of Jude's letter. So let's start with looking at this doxology from the inside. What does it say? Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, a doxology by definition is an expression of praise to God. But what we find is that uh, each doxology tends to bring out certain emphases, and Jude is no different. Jude praises God for his power to keep his people. Verses 24 and 25, praise God for his power to keep his people. Now, how does Jude do that? Well, doxologies have a a fairly set format. There are typically four parts for movements in a doxology. First, a doxology will answer the question, whom are we praising? Second, the doxology will answer the question, for what are we praising him? So whom are we praising is the first part of a doxology. Second, uh, for what are we praising him? And then third, a doxology will answer the question, for how long will he be praiseworthy in this way? The third part is a a question of of duration or time. And then the fourth part, the shortest part, is the response. Almost always an amen. So Jude has these four parts. And what's interesting is you can have all four parts in a very brief doxology. Think about it this way. If you have this sentence, to God belongs glory forever, amen, you have all four parts of a doxology. But what often happens and what Jude does is parts uh, get expanded. Uh, Elements of the doxology get uh, filled out in such a way that a, a particular aspect of God is highlighted or praised. 
So let's look at Jude's four parts. So first, whom are we praising? Whom are we praising? This is all of verse 24 into the very first phrase of verse 25. And we see that we are praising the God who is able to fully save his people. We are praising the God who is able to fully save his people. Look at verse 24. Now, to him who is able. We can stop right there and just note this is about God's power. To say that God is able is the same thing as saying God is powerful enough to fill in the blank. So here, the aspect of God's power that Jude is focusing on is his power to keep you, church, Christians, believers, to keep you from stumbling. Well, what does that mean? This is about Christians persevering in the faith. The stumbling in view here is not the occasional uh, sin. The stumbling here is talking about walking away from Jesus, abandoning your confession of faith in Him. And what Jude says is God is the one who has the power to keep us so that we don't do that. God has the power to cause believers to keep on trusting in Jesus. The second half of verse 24 is really just the the flip side of that same coin. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So the the, the flip side of not stumbling, of not uh, walking away from the faith, is that you will one day be made to stand joyfully, without fault, without blemish, in the presence of God. And the point here, as Jude is, is filling out whom it is that we are praising, is that God is the one who secures us to that end. The one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then look at verse 25. He, he sort of gathers that up in one final description. To the only God, our Savior. That is a fitting title to give to God in light of verse 24. God does not merely come to us and make salvation available and sort of uh, leave the rest up to us. The picture of Jude 24 is a God who fully saves us, who saves us all the way to the end, who brings us safely home to the resurrection and the new creation to come. So if you're not yet a Christian, it's important that you understand the kind of salvation that Jesus offers. It is not a halfway salvation. It's not a 50-50 deal. For those who trust in Christ, the salvation that God promises is full and all the way to the end. So that's the first part 
of the doxology. Whom are we praising? We're praising the God who fully saves us. Now, let's look at the second part. For what are we praising this God? And the short answer is that we are praising God for His greatness and His power. We are praising God in this doxology for His greatness and His power. Look at verse 25. So after this this long introduction of whom we're praising, Jude gets to the the praise, the, the reason for the praise. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ, here it is, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So God is to be praised here for four things. Four attributes are ascribed to him. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And the first two really go together. Glory and majesty are both describing the greatness of God, the the weighty, shining brilliance of all his perfections. He is great. He is majestic. He is glorious. The, The second half of that set of four, dominion and authority, they also go together, and they are both describing God's power. He has raw strength, and he also has the right to use it. He has dominion and authority. So we are praising God here for his greatness and his power, And notice that there's a phrase that comes in just before that that is significant. These four things are ascribed to God, how? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here we get a small but powerful glimpse into the Trinity. Because it seems that what Jude is saying is that God the Father's possession of these four attributes is not independent or disconnected from the eternal Son, whom we know after his incarnation as Jesus Christ. And we can, we can go one step further and say, it's not just about the, the mystery of the eternal Trinity and how God's attributes function within that. This really reminds us that we know God through Christ, that we come to know the real God, not just in the abstract, not as the conclusion to some logical syllogism, but we come to know the real God through the person of Jesus. And that is significant for what we are thinking about, because when we think about an all-powerful God, when we consider what it would mean to live in a universe ruled by a sovereign king, we are not just thinking about a generic fill-in-the-blank deity. We are thinking about this God, the tri-personal, self-donating God of the gospel. That's the God that we're thinking about possessing all power and authority. That makes a big difference. Think about it this way. It is because God uses his power the way he does in verse 24 that the declaration of his power in verse 25 is a happy declaration. Because he uses his power to save us in verse 24, the the 
praise of verse 25 is joyous. So we're praising the God who fully saves us. Second, we're praising Him for His greatness and His power. And now third, how, how long? What, what time reference should we think of God in this way? We'll look at what Jude says next. These four things are ascribed to God before all time and now and forever. There, there is not a way to state it more comprehensively. God has been unimaginably great and immeasurably powerful from eternity past through the present, and He will continue to be so on into eternity future. Fourth, the response. Look at the very last word, the amen. The idea here, although it's not stated, is that this would be the response of the gathered assembly of God's people. So the, the doxology is given with those three parts, whom we're praising, what we're praising Him for, and for how long is He like this. And then the congregation, the people of God respond and say, yes, we agree. That is our God. In this case, yes, our God will fully save us. We do acknowledge the greatness and the power of the God who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before him blameless with great joy. That's the doxology from the inside. It's an amazing doxology. It's perhaps the most famous doxology in the New Testament, which is surprising because Jude as a whole is perhaps the most neglected book of the Old Testament. But this doxology is so profound and so beautiful. But here's what I want to do. I want to take a step back and actually think about what is this doxology doing here? Why does Jude end this book this way? So let's, let's take a step back and think about and look at this doxology from the outside. How does it fit with the rest of the book? Think about what we've seen so far. If you've been here the last few weeks, the book of Jude most fundamentally is a call to action. It is an urgent appeal to contend for the faith, or as we've been talking about it, to fight for the gospel. So think about how striking this ending is, that you have a book, or better yet, a, a letter. You have a letter that is all about what Christians must do, yet it ends with what God will do. Look back at verse 3. Verse 3 is the great uh, appeal. This is the point of the letter. I found it necessary to write, verse 3 says, appealing to you to contend for the faith. And then verse 4 says why this was necessary. Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And then Jude proceeds 
in verses 5 through 16 to try to wake them up to the danger that they did not recognize. And then in verses 17 through 23, he gets to his main appeal. He explains to them how to contend, how to fight for the gospel. And as we saw last week, that section is organized around commands. These Christians have work to do. They have action that they must take. But Jude ends with God's action, God's power. And we can press in and get even more specific. Look at verse 21. This was one of the main commands that Jude gave in this section about how to fight. He says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. But notice what he praises God for in verse 24. He is able to keep you. Now, to be clear, the two words for keeping in these two verses are are different words in Greek, but they're talking about the same thing. Jude can say, in the space of a few sentences, Christian, persevere in the faith. And, Christian, God will persevere you in the faith. Now, this is where many of us struggle because we, we, we want to say, well, which is it? Or how? how? How is it that Christians can be told to persevere and yet Christians can, two sentences later, be comforted that God will persevere them? This is where we feel the tension of the, the theological equation that doesn't seem to, to add up. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not criticizing those questions. How does this work? How do these two things relate to each other? Those are reasonable, valid questions that other passages of Scripture help us think about. But what I am saying is notice what Jude does with the power of God and the responsibility of people. He doesn't bother to try and untie the theological knot or explain the mechanics of these two things. What Jude seems to be doing, perhaps counterintuitively to us, is he is motivating action with the power of God. He, he, it's, it's not as if he says, keep yourselves, but God will keep you. The way this doxology seems to, to come in as the grand finale of the letter, it seems to me that Jude is motivating them to keep themselves by the encouragement that God will keep them. To put it slightly differently, God's power is the fuel for our fight for the gospel. Our youngest child is four, four years old, and so we're in that phase of life where we're trying to figure out what to let him do and what to do for him. And one of the things that we've decided we're going to let him do is buckle himself in his his car seat, uh, which you can maybe imagine sometimes takes a while. 
So it takes some self-control on our part as parents to not just buckle him for him. Really, we, we only step in to buckle his seatbelt, his, his harness and his car seat, when he gets stuck and he just simply can't do it. And the thinking is, which is intuitive to, to all of us, I'm sure, if, if, if we do it for him, he'll never learn how to do it himself. So we have to let him do it himself so that he can learn how to do it. I think that's wise. I mean, you could tell me if I'm wrong, but here's why I bring that up. I think we, we get confused or bothered or troubled by God's power because we think of it like a bigger version of the four-year-old in a car seat. And here's what I mean. We think that God's power exercised in our life somehow diminishes our personal agency. As if, if God would simply back off a little bit and, and restrain his power we would be free to learn how to do the right thing on our own. That, that intuitively makes sense to us because that's how we operate with each other as fellow human creatures. But that way of thinking about God's power in our life is misguided for at least two reasons. The first reason that's a misconception of God's power is that it underestimates how pervasive God's power is. The Bible teaches again and again and again that God exercises his providential rule of his creation in and through everything, including our own will. So it's not quite right to think about God's power as this this intrusion or this distinct interruption to the normal operation of things external to our will. That's not the picture of God's power that the Bible gives us. The picture is rather that God, among all the other ways he's acting, also acts in and through us. The second reason the four-year-old in a car seat analogy doesn't work, or is in fact misguided, is that it overestimates us. The assumption that many of us carry around, sometimes unspoken, is that if God would back off, we, we would be just fine, and it would be more authentically us doing it. But the Bible says that our sinfulness and our weakness and our twisted brokenness is so severe that if God backed off, we would be doomed. We wouldn't be more free. We would be more enslaved to our own sin and brokenness and weakness. Maybe a better analogy, not a perfect one, but maybe a better analogy for how we relate to God's power is the way that we relate to gravity. Think about it. Gravity is constantly operating on us. It is continuously pushing its force on us. But we don't experience that as oppressive or limiting. We also, uh, many of us, don't fully understand how it works, if we're honest. Uh, it's, it's still a little bit confusing how exactly we're, we're sticking uh, to this planet as it hurtles around a star. Here's the other thing. If gravity 
were somehow canceled, we would not become more free. We would become dead, right? Now, the analogy is imperfect because God's power and His, His providence are, are, are personal and they're purposeful, whereas gravity is, is impersonal. But this is the, the point that I'm making, that God's power is less troubling and even perhaps less confusing when we realize that it's actually more pervasive. It's actually bigger than we think it is. And perhaps more importantly, it becomes less troubling, his power does, when we realize that he's trustworthy to use it. When we realize that if it was up to us, it would end badly. Think about, based on Jude 24 and 25, who it is we're talking about. If you or I had ultimate power over the universe, that would be terrifying. But if a God like this has ultimate power over the universe, well, then there's hope for the universe. If, if sovereign authority is wielded by the, the kind of God who would send his own son to die for his enemies and then proceed to keep us safe in his son, that kind of God can be trusted to exercise sovereign authority, absolute power. Okay, we've looked at the doxology from the inside. Praises God for his power to keep his people. We've now looked at the doxology from the outside, how, how this fits with the rest of Jude's letter. I think, at least for today, the takeaway is this. The fight for the gospel is fueled by the kindness and power of God at work in us. This letter is all about fighting, contending, working hard, keeping yourselves in the love of God. But the conclusion of the letter shows us that our fight for the gospel, vigorous and full of effort as it needs to be, is fueled by not our effort or our vigor, but by the kindness and power of God at work in us. Let me just give you a few suggestions on how this might impact your life and mine. First, thank God for keeping you. If you are a believer, one aspect of your relationship with God should be an ongoing sense of gratitude and wonder that you are still a believer today. Because Jude is saying, God does that. Yes, you can look back and you can see the struggle. You can see the effort. You can see the tenacity that you showed to keep holding on to Jesus. But Jude 24 and 25 is saying, underneath all of that, in and through all of that, it was God holding on to you. And so, thank Him for keeping you. Second, don't be embarrassed to pray this prayer. God, keep me a believer. That might seem surprising in light of the first suggestion. It might even seem like, uh, sounds like a, a, a lack of assurance, but it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be a lack of assurance to say, God, keep me safe 
in Christ all the way to the end. I would argue that that prayer or a prayer like that is an expression of confident faith in God because what we see in the Bible is the people of God asking God to keep his own promises. David did that. Jesus told us to do that in the Lord's Prayer. The prayer of faith, among other things, asks God to keep his promises. And so we pray without embarrassment, God, keep me in Christ. Third, bring your mess to God. More specifically, bring your mess to the God that Jude 24 and 25 describes. When you doubt him, don't hide from him. Bring your doubtful, weak self to the God who keeps you. When you are discouraged, bring your discouragement to the God who is stronger than you are. When you feel disgusted with yourself, bring that to the God who has promised to present you blameless in his presence with great joy. And when you feel exhausted, bring that to the God who holds you up and not the other way around. Fourth, savor the beauty of God in order to grow. Savor, enjoy, relish the beauty of God in order to grow. When we think about making progress as Christians, we often gravitate towards commandments, instructions. What do I need to do? What do I need to stop doing? Where do I need to change? And all of that is good and right and fitting. After all, Jesus calls those who would trust in him to express that trust by following him. So the Christian life and growth in the Christian life is uh, made up of obeying commands, trusting in Jesus, taking concrete steps, building habits, and things like that. And Jude would agree. He wrote a letter 90% of which, 95% of which, is focused on what we need to do to make progress, to fight for the gospel, to not be deceived, to hold fast. But he ended this action-oriented letter with a picture of God. So yes, we are called to follow Jesus, but if we are going to follow Jesus and keep following Jesus all the way to the end, one of the things that we need is for our hearts to be happy in Jesus. And so one of the things that we do in order to make progress along the way is we try to do things to help our hearts become more happy in Jesus. So maybe that means for you, spend some time listening to worship music, listening to hymns, letting that emotional, affection-oriented power of Words put to music about God have its effect on you. When you read the Bible, slow down and linger in those passages that that tell you about God, 
who he is, what he's like, what he's done for you. Don't rush past that to find the quote-unquote practical application, as if it were not practical to be amazed by God. In Jude's framework, it would seem, being amazed by, amazed by God is what drives you and fuels you and keeps you going to do all the practical applications. When you pray, spend time, linger in praising God, in contemplating who He is, thanking Him for what He's done. Here's the thing. Christianity is not a man-made religion. Christianity is reality itself revealed by God Himself. And what we're seeing in Jude at the end in particular is that in light of that fact, we pursue our Christian faith realizing that it ultimately rests not on us, but on God. He is the one who has the power to keep us and to present us. His is the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the authority. And one aspect of growing as a Christian is looking at that and finding it beautiful and powerfully motivating. Let's pray. God, we pray for your truth to do its work in our hearts. Lord, these things are true whether we feel them or not, whether we rejoice in them or not, but we long to conform our hearts and minds and actions to what is actually real. And so would you help us do that? Would you help us to love and rejoice in your power? Would you help us to bring whatever lingering doubts and questions we have about your power to you? And to let you not only answer our questions, but reframe how we even think about them. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would keep us and draw near to us. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for going on this journey through Jude these last four weeks. It's been a joy and an honor to share that time with you. As we go now, uh, let's depart with a benediction. May God the Father, who is able to keep you, mightily do so in Christ by His Spirit. Go in peace.